Good morning, Calvary. Today, we'll be reading from several passages of the Word of God. Please feel free to follow along on your screen. Our first passage today is from Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And now from Matthew eight fourteen through 27. And Jesus entered Peter's house he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illness and bore our disease. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the seas obey him? And now we read from Colossians 1, 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And now lastly, from 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Calvary. Hope you are doing all right here on this third Sunday of Lent. And uh, it's beautiful outside with some uh, more promising weather coming uh, this week. So that's uh, great. And uh, it is good to be uh, with you this morning. We are kind of gearing up uh, here for kind of practice, as it were, for our Easter 
Sunday morning. I'm excited uh, for those of you that will be able to join us on Easter morning. And uh, that's going to be a fantastic time. I think I'm excited also for the baptisms. So if you have been thinking, oh, i got to get baptized. I should be baptized. I'm ready to to be baptized. This is it, Easter. Uh, fantastic time to get baptized. Would love to have you here join us for baptism on Easter Sunday morning. So let me encourage you uh, to do that as well. Well, today we continue on in our sermon series, All Things New, the story of the Bible and the healing of the world. And uh, so I work out a couple days a week uh, with some guys here from church, Clyde Lundgren, Scott Lucas, you made some of you know them, some don't. But they're always so uh, kind. They ask me on Thursday mornings when we work out, how's the sermon going? You know, and so I was telling them this Thursday that I, I had written most of it, but the intro wasn't going to work. I had written the intro. By the time I got to the end of the sermon, the intro was wrong. and I was going to have to rewrite it. And, and Clyde said, oh, don't, uh, I said, don't worry about the intro. Just tell a Maley story. He said, because that's a real crowd, crowd pleaser. Everyone loves a good Maley story. And if you have been around Calvary, you know that Maley is our six-year-old, our charming little Ethiopian six-year-old. And uh, so she always has uh, tons of great things to say. Now, I'm running out of like runway for how long I can keep telling Maley stories before it will become annoying to her. And, uh, but right, we're not at the end of the runway yet. And so I was thinking, well, what kind of Maley story could I tell today from my intro? And I was thinking about how she's, she's been using uh, scare quotes lately. She just found out about scare quotes. And so she's, she's trying them out all over the place. And uh, so it'll be like, hey, Dad, Mom says it's time for dinner. You know, <laughs> or Dad, Mom says I have to go to bed. And I'm like, well it is time for dinner or it's just time for dinner? Like what, what is, you know, so she doesn't quite know how to use them, but it's, it's very charming how she, how she uses them. And uh, so that's, this has been my introduction uh, this morning right here is a Maley story. Actually, that introduction does tie in to where we're going today because today's sermon is about what it means to be human. And it's proper to put human in scare quotes here because true humanity in the Bible is far more complex. It's far more developed than the way that our world conceives of humanity. And so to understand the true nature of humanity, we're going to look more closely at Jesus's humanity. If you've been tracking with our sermon series for the past uh, year or more, uh, we have uh, been looking at the story of the Bible all the way from Genesis chapter 1, and we've made our way now into the Gospels where we've arrived at kind of the, 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 the climax of the story really is getting to the appearance of Jesus. We're nearing the climax, and Jesus is the central figure in the Bible, in the entire Bible, and he's very well known, not just within Christianity, but broadly in the world. He is very well known to Christians and in Christianity as the Son of God. But he's come to be known so widely as the Son of God that I think sometimes even as Christians, we can also forget that he is the Son of Man. And I was going back through the Gospels uh, again this week as I was preparing for this sermon and counted up the number of times that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. And uh, my account, give or take a couple, maybe I missed some, is 78 times in the Gospels he refers to himself as the Son of Man. But only two times in the Gospels does he refer to himself as the Son of God. 
Now the demons refer to him as the son of God. The disciples refer to him as the son of God. The Pharisees refer to him as the son of God. The gospel writers themselves refer to him as the son of God. So he is the son of God. But when Jesus chooses to speak of himself, he almost always goes to the language of the son of man. So that should make us go, hmm, like what is that about? Why does he refer to himself as the Son of Man. So this morning I want us to see how the humanity of Jesus, his identity as the Son of Man, fits into the larger story of redemption that the Bible is telling. And then how the humanity of Jesus offers us hope for our own humanity. So we're going to look at four passages that have already been read for us this morning. The first three passages explore or look into Jesus's humanity. And then the last passage from 1 Corinthians 15 reveals how Jesus's humanity touches our humanity. And then we're going to bring all that together and celebrate the Lord's table together with communion. So we're going to begin this morning with Genesis chapter 1, which is read for us. And so we're going all the way back to the beginning of the story. And uh, if you were here for the beginning of the story, uh, you know that when God creates the world in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2, he creates a beautiful and a good world. And it's a world that is endowed with God's own beauty, his own love and his own power. And in this good world that God has made as he's going through day one of creation, day two, day three, day four in Genesis chapter one, we get to the last day of creation where God is creating something on day six and he makes humanity and humanity is the pinnacle of God's creative power the last and best of all that God has made and uniquely we see in Genesis 1 26 and 27 that unlike all that has come before humanity is made according to or in the image and likeness of God and then in their capacity as image bearers, humanity then is to exercise dominion or sovereignty over all that God has made. Could have kept going in our scripture reading this morning on into verse 28. The author of Genesis says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves over the earth. So God creates humanity in his image, gives them dominion over all that, ha that he has made, and then sends them out into the world to subdue the world. So as we move into Genesis 2, then we see a picture of humanity dwelling initially in this beautiful garden of Eden. It's a, it's a garden temple, as we looked at when we were on this passage, supplied then by God's endless provision and bounty in Eden. Humanity then is to go out into the whole earth and subdue the whole earth. So humanity is created, we saw as royal priests, kings and queens of the world, bringing order and beauty to the raw material of creation. This term that's used in Genesis 1, 28, uh, subdue. God sends humanity out to subdue the earth. It's an interesting word. I was looking at it uh, this week. And it's a term that is used uh, not a lot of times in the Old Testament, but it's used a number of times in the Old Testament in Hebrew, uh, kabas, for military conquest. 
So it's, it's the taming of hostile powers, which is an interesting word to be used with relation to humanity. God has created this world. It's full of beauty, but it's untamed. There are elements of it that still could be hostile. And so God sends humanity out into the world with dominion to subdue the world, to bring it into a place of peace. So when a king would come into a hostile territory, he would subdue it and bring peace in that territory. So this is what humanity is to do with the world that God has made. But then in Genesis 3, we know the story, all things go wrong at that point. The adversary, the Satan, driven by envy, he enters into the garden and he convinces Adam and Eve that the tree of knowledge, the one tree that God has forbidden them to eat from within the garden, that this tree will make them more like God than they already are. And so deceived by the devil, humanity reaches for the forbidden fruit of divinity and alienates itself from God's life. And then here's the great irony to that story. In trying to become like the sovereign God, humanity lost its sovereignty. Trying to become like the God who had dominion over all, we compromised our capacity for dominion. For dominion. So the ability that we originally had, this God-given ability to bring order and life to the untamed elements of creation, now because of sin has been compromised. And we read through Genesis chapter 3 and beyond, and we see the effects of this compromised capacity. But we experience it in the world all the time. Hurricanes, earthquakes, storms, volcanoes, the earth rages against our efforts to subdue it. We can't subdue it anymore. We, we are the apex predators of the world still, but even we as apex predators are at the mercy of the world when it becomes angry. And we can feel the loss of our dominion or our authority over the world. Even if I think subconsciously we feel the loss, we may not realize that's even what we're feeling. But I think that this explains the innate human fascination uh, that we have with magic. And you go all the way back into the annals of history, right? And ever since humanity kind of awoke to itself, we've been, we have been fascinated with magic and we're preoccupied with power. I think this explains a lot of the fascination that our culture has and that every culture has with Harry Potter, right? With the, the magic uh, power of Harry Potter or Star Wars. I mean, what makes Star Wars so fascinating is the force, the capacity of the Jedis to subdue the world around them, to bring it into order. Or the recent craze, uh, most recently with the Marvel uh, comics or the DC comics of superheroes. All of these things are echoes of sovereignty. It's, a, it's an attempt to return back to, even in just in a fantasy way, to the sovereignty that we innately feel we should have or that we long to have. I think even sports can be understood in this framework. There's something glorious about the athlete that can exercise and have dominion on the, on the playing field and bring their will to bear so that they accomplish what they're wanting to accomplish. I think men especially long for this return of sovereignty. I think it's true of all human beings, but to the degree 
uh, that it's been lost. I think men feel this loss and long for it more acutely. It's a whole sermon that could be preached there, I think. But what's more, humanity's loss of sovereignty over the world is not merely global and sort of cosmic, but it's also very personal. And here's an interesting insight that I gained from St. Augustine. We too, he notes, are part of creation. We are made from the earth. I mean, Genesis chapter 2, it makes it clear that Adam is made out of the dust of the ground. He is made of the earth. And when we look at the language in Genesis chapter 2, there's this clear connection between even the naming of Adam and the earth. The man, Adam, which is the Hebrew word for man, is made from the Adama, the earth. And so here... The, the man is named in a way after the earth out of which he is made. And insofar as we lost our dominion over the earth and the world, we lost dominion over ourselves as well. So here's what Augustine says on this. He says, The fact is that the soul, which had taken perverse delight in its own liberty and disdained the service of God, was now deprived of its original dom dom dominion over the body. And because it had deliberately deserted the Lord who was over it, was no longer able to hold the flesh completely in subjection as would have always been the case if only the soul had remained subject to God. So St. Augustine is saying is, in refusing to live under God's control, we lost control of all that God had appointed to us to have control over, which included our own bodies. I think all of us can feel the struggle to master ourselves, to master our bodies. I think all of us in varying degrees, some more than others, but we either end up, I think, in relation to our bodies, either surrendering the field of conflict altogether and we let the body just be in charge and we let ourselves be driven uh, by bodily appetites and cravings for food and for comfort and for sex, for pleasure, for drink, or we go in the opposite direction and we wage kind of our own personal private war against that one little part of creation that we feel like we still can master, our bodies. And so we try to master our bodies through bulimia or anorexia or obsessive exercise routines. Or we have Christians spiritualized versions of this through excessive fasting, asceticism, self-denial. But we're going to bring mastery back. We're going to reclaim sovereignty even if it's just over our own bodies. But whether we are capitulating to the larger power of nature or we are trying to tyrannize over the little bit of nature that makes up our bodies, in either case, the fact is that we have lost our capacity to be benevolent and powerful priests, kings, and queens over creation that God intended us to be. So this is the problem that is given to us in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But then in Genesis 3, 15, God speaks the word of promise about how he will redeem the world that has become broken, how he will fix a humanity that has lost its capacity for benevolent dominion. So the promise is given in Genesis 3, 15 that a son of Eve will arise who will put everything right. And included with putting everything right is the promise that humanity's capacity to exercise wise and benevolent dominion over the whole of creation, including our own bodies, will one day be restored. Dominion will be given back to humanity. That's part of the promise that is given 
in Genesis 3.15. All right, now with all that in mind, let's fast forward then to Matthew chapter 8 and what we read. Jesus at last appears upon the pages of the Bible. He is the promised son of Eve. He is here to fix all that has been broken with the first Adam and Eve, right? He's going to put everything right. So Matthew 8 opens up for us right on the heels of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, you can look here at the very end of it. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, it ends in verse 28. And when Jesus had finished the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew tells us, the crowds were astonished at his teachings. Why were they astonished? Well, verse 29, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. There was something about Jesus' person, his presence, his teaching that evoked authority, and it astonished them. They were seeing a glimpse of this dominion returning. Well, after Jesus is done teaching in Matthew chapter 7, then we get Matthew chapter 8, and we begin to see the embodiment of this dominion in the miracles that he does. So we encounter a number of miracles, and I'm going to call them dominion miracles uh, because there are expressions of Jesus' dominion. Matthew 8, uh, 14, Jesus exercises dominion over the body when he heals Peter's mother-in-law. So Peter's mother-in-law is sick, Jesus comes into the home and he has this capacity to exercise dominion over the body in such a way that he not only is able to move his arms and his legs, but he's able to move, as it were, the very cells that make up the body so that he can fix and he can heal Peter's mother-in-law's fever. And we see him doing this all throughout the Gospels. He is uh, a master of healing. He has this capacity to bring dominion back to the body. And then in verse 16, Jesus exercises dominion over the spirit world. He casts out the demons, the agents of the dark Lord, as it were, the chief foe of humanity. And again, we see this all throughout the Gospels. Jesus has such power over the demonic world, the unclean spirits. In fact, if we kept reading, reading in Matthew chapter 8, he encounters uh, another uh, miraculous, or he, encounters another, he has another miraculous encounter uh, with a man who is beset by a thousand demons, and he exercises this great dominion and power over the spirit world. But then in verse 16, here's where I want to focus, or verse 23 rather, here's where I want to focus. We get an encounter, we encounter an arresting example of Jesus' dominion. So I'm going to look a little closely at this event. Jesus and his disciples are sailing across the Sea of Galilee. And if you're not familiar with the Sea of Galilee, it's about eight miles wide, 12 miles long, which if you can think about 12 miles, that's from like Calvary's front door basically to Lake Michigan. So it's not a small lake. It's not a huge lake. It's not as big as Lake Michigan, but it's not a small lake either. So this is a fairly sizable lake. And so Jesus and his disciples are sailing across the Sea of Galilee. And we read that they got into the boat uh, in the evening. And uh, while they are out on the lake, presumably uh, they're uh, out on the lake in the evening, a great storm comes up upon them. And it's such a uh, a ferocious storm that they are afraid they are all going to perish. So they call out to Jesus for help. And in one of the most iconic and dramatic moments of Jesus' dominion, he stands up in the boat and he rebukes the winds and the waves and immediately 
text tells us, there was great calm. Mark chapter 4, which recounts this same episode, gives us the words that Jesus spoke to the winds and the waves. He said, peace, be still. And he subdued the untamed storm. Peace, be still. I try that with my kids sometimes when they're fighting and making a big, I'm like, peace, be still. But it, it's less effective than Jesus's capacity to calm the storm. But can you imagine that moment out there on the lake in the dark of night? The winds and the waves are raging. You're afraid of your life. And Jesus stands up in the boat and he commands the seas to bow. And they bow before him. Mark's gospel says that Jesus' disciples went from being terrified of the storm to being terrified of Jesus. The storm had power. But Jesus' power and his dominion was greater than the power of the storm. And so then they ask, here in Matthew 8, verse 27, they ask, what is exactly the right question to ask? They say, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? What sort of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? The Apostle Paul gives us the answer to their question in Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. This man who can heal the body who rules over the spirits, who commands the winds and the waves, this man is the image of God. He is the perfect second Adam. He is humanity restored. He is, Paul says, the firstborn of creation. He is what humanity was supposed to be. He is what you and I were created according to. And here's the thing I want us to see. Jesus' dominion over disease, over the demons, over the storm, it's not merely a revelation of his true divinity. It's a revelation of his true humanity. Jesus is showing us what it looks like for humanity to be restored to lordship, to its rightful place of dominion over all that God has made. He's showing us what it looks like for humanity to once again be priests, kings, and queens of the world who have the capacity to go out and to subdue it, to tame the untamed creation. That has been God's original intent from, for humanity since the very beginning we were made in the image of God to reveal in our very being, in our very humanity, the glory and the power and the love of God. And redemption, the whole story of redemption of the Bible is about us becoming what we were created to be. So this is what Paul means in Romans 8, 29, when he writes that God has destined those who are in Christ to be conformed to the image of the Son so that the son might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. 
Jesus is the apex of what humanity was made to be. And in God's redemptive activity, he brings us up to be brothers and sisters of Jesus. God forgive us, I think, and God help us. But do you see what God is offering us in Jesus? He is offering us sovereignty and dominion over the world, the perfect capacity to be everything that human beings were created to be. He is offering to remake us according to the image of the Son of Man and the Lord of creation, who is himself the Son of God and the Lord of heaven, to be made like Jesus. I mean, I think we have such a reductionistic idea of what that means. We think it means it's, we're going to just stop being mean and stop looking at porn and stop losing our tempers. Yes, 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 all of that, but so much more. To be made according to the image of the Son means that we will be able, listen, in the words of Jesus, we will be able to tell mountains to fall into the sea, to raise the dead, to wither fig trees and heal the sick and tell storms to stop raging. Or did Jesus not mean what he said when he told his disciples that they would do more amazing things than even Jesus had done? That day isn't here yet, but even now... God is working to make us little Christs. He is creating us in Christ Jesus to be living and breathing brothers and sisters of the Son of God, the Son of Man. Most of us know the story of Pinocchio. Uh, Disney, of course, made it into a cartoon. It was written by Carlo Collati back in the uh, 1880s, the early 1880s. And in the story, Pinocchio, Geppetto, the toy maker, he makes little wooden toy dolls. He makes Pinocchio. But then in Geppetto's love for what he has made, Pinocchio comes to life. Right? But Pinocchio, when he comes to life, he sits somewhere between a wooden doll that is lifeless and a real living flesh and blood boy. He's in this middle space, this living wooden doll, this wooden puppet. And if Pinocchio lives into the obedience of his father's love, he will become a living, breathing boy. But if he rejects obedience to his father's love and goes his own way, he becomes something else besides a human being. Right? His disobedience to his father takes him in the story, it takes him into the realm of a donkey. All of humanity is like the living doll Pinocchio right now. That's the place in which we find ourselves. We are more than creatures, but we are not yet fully and truly human. We are not everything that Christ is himself. We sit between earth and heaven like living earth puppets. We're made of the stuff of earth. We're alive but we're not yet fully human. And that brings us to our last verse this morning, 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Paul compares the first Adam, this earth puppet, as it were, this living earth puppet, with the last Adam, Jesus. And he says this, he says, the first man, Adam, became a living being, but the last Adam, 
became a life-giving spirit. The first Adam, on the day that he was created, he became alive. He moved from being just a clump of dirt to something that was alive. But the second Adam, the one that comes from heaven, the true and better and last Adam, the one whom the first Adam was made according to, he is not only alive, he is life itself. And because he is life, he is able to give life. He is a life-giving spirit. By God's grace, when we turn to Christ in faith, the life-giving spirit, who is the second Adam, places a deposit of his Holy Spirit inside of us so that one day we will become as he is, truly and fully human. So let me give a couple words here to both Christians and non-Christians. We have both uh, listening to the sermon today. So for Christians, how do we think about this truth? I mean, I just love this redemptive story of God giving us back dominion over the world as a way to express his own dominion. But like, what is the application of that? Right? Like, what does this mean for our lives in the here and now? Let me just give a couple things for us as Christians to think about. I think it means that we must remember that power exists for love. Power exists for love. Whatever sovereignty that you have still that remains of what was given to humanity, whatever sovereignty you have, you have to use it in a spirit of love and to bring peace. Jesus is the full expression of humanity's dignity restored, of humanity's power restored, of humanity's dominion restored. And how does he use his power and his dominion and his sovereignty? He uses it in love to bring healing and to bring peace. And so as we look to use whatever remains of our dominion and sovereignty, whatever echoes still are with us, we must use the power that we have to bring peace and healing and love. This is why God gave us power to begin with. He didn't give us power to tyrannize over creation. He gave us power to subdue it and to bring peace to it. So we think about the proper use of power. We need to think about it in the context of peace and love. I think this also means that we need to be content to live submissively as creatures under God's dominion now, knowing that he will make us into his living, breathing children on the day of resurrection. St. Irenaeus, one of my uh, favorite Church fathers might be, in fact, my favorite church father. And uh, I say that about all of them. But uh, he says, I love the way that he puts together the fall of Adam and Eve and the destiny and the redemptive narrative of the Bible. But he says that Adam and Eve's chief problem in the garden was that they refused to be creatures. It's a really, really profound insight. That Adam and Eve's chief problem was they refused to be creatures. They weren't content to be made according to the image of God. They wanted to be God themselves. And they reached out for divinity, the tree of knowledge. They wanted to be like God. That's what Satan promised to them. And it led to their ruin. And God, the whole story of the Bible, is God promising to give us back dominion and sovereignty that reflects God's own sovereignty. We can never be God. We can't be God. 
right? But we can be reflections of God. We can be reflections of his dominion and sovereignty. But only insofar as we learn to be humble creatures first. We don't want to make the same error of Adam and Eve to reach out impatiently to become what we think we should be without refusing to submit to what God has called us to be. Don't get impatient and think that you have to have it all in the here and the now. I think that a lot of our quest, particularly again as men, to regain sovereignty, to regain dominion, we, it leads us into all sorts of dark places, right? And we we, we, we grasp after what has been lost because we're not content in faith to wait for God to give it back to us as a free gift. So don't get impatient trying to race ahead to lay hold of sovereignty and dominion in a way that makes you not embrace the reality that you are a creature who must live in obedience and submission to God. And then the last thing I would say is don't settle, kind of on the heels of that, don't settle for cheap and sinful imitations of dominion and sovereignty. And there are ways that we can get fixated on things that seem to be giving us back a sense of dominion and sovereignty and they become distractions to us. Right? So the preoccupation that young men all the way into young uh, adulthood have with video games, right? I think some of that is a re- it's a, it's a, it's an attempt to regain sovereignty, right? You can be sovereign in the video game, right? It's easier to be sovereign there than it is to be sovereign out in the real world, right? Or even the, the, the fully grown male who takes that quest for sovereignty into the business world, right? And looks to dominate in the business world. And there's so many places where all of us, men and women, can try to grasp sovereignty in illegitimate ways that become problematic for what God is calling us to be as creatures. So let's not chase after cheap, sinful imitations of dominion and sovereignty. Let's be content to be submissive creatures before God, knowing that in faith he will raise us up in due time. All right, to my non-Christian friends, I try to think about what, what do I say to you in light of what all has been said here. Matthew 25, uh, Jesus taught that all are going to die and all are going to be raised, both the righteous and the unrighteous. Raised up both the righteous and the unrighteous for this day of judgment. And those who went to the grave with the life of the second Adam, the life of Jesus flowing through their veins, that life will flower on the day of resurrection into a full and true eternal humanity. But those who went to the grave with only the life of the first Adam in their veins, that dead and dying life, that dead life will wither on the day of resurrection and decompose both soul and body in eternal death. This is what the Bible is talking about when it talks about hell. It's talking about the eternal death of the life of the first Adam, cut off from the life of God, the life of the second Adam, withering and dying. You can't become fully human in your own strength. So let me encourage you, my non-Christian friends, to surrender to the care of the life-giving spirit who is the second Adam. 
Apostle Paul says that now today, this day is the day of salvation. God is offering us this day. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know how long the day of salvation goes, but we know that this day is a day of salvation. God is offering us in Christ a chance to switch humanities from the broken and dying humanity of Adam to the living and deified even humanity of Jesus. John 3.16, a passage that is often quoted, God so loves the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God's heart and his desire is to see us enter into the life of the son. It's not God's heart that any should perish or should be forever cut off from a chance to participate in the truly living life of the Son of Man, who is himself the Son of God. So let me encourage you to, to, to trust him to heal you and transform you, to change you now until the end. Becoming a Christian is a lot like getting married. It's a decisive one-time event. You're either married or you're not married, right? And you're either a Christian or you're not a Christian. Right? There's no kind of like sort of Christian, sort of married, right? Becoming a Christian is a lot like getting married. It's a decisive one-time event that includes both a private commitment, we call that engagement in our culture, and then a public formal recognition. We call that a ceremony. We call that a wedding. So these parallel into the way that conversion happens in Christianity. There's that private internal commitment between you and Jesus. He offers his humanity, his divine humanity, divinely empowered humanity to you. He's offering you the marriage proposal. Right? And in the privacy of your own heart between you and him, you accept that and you take that. Right? And then you move into baptism, which is the equivalent of the wedding, which is the formal recognition or the celebration of what it means to have accepted Jesus's marriage proposal. We're not doing baptisms right now. We're doing them in Easter. But maybe even in this moment right now, you feel Jesus reaching out to you. He is offering to you his true living humanity. If you look at your own life and you see it, just you, you can't make yourself be what you know you should be. You can't master creation. You can't even master your own body. Right? You feel the loss of sovereignty and dominion, and it's ruining your own life. Right? And you long to be connected back to the forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ. If he's offering his hand to you right now, that I encourage you to accept it and to take it. Maybe you do so in a private prayer between you and the Lord. It would say something like this, Lord Jesus, I can't be what I know I should be. I've tried and I have failed. You created me. You know what I need. Come into my life and make me your own. Forgive me for all my failures, past, present, and future, and fill me with your life-giving spirit so I can walk in the newness of life. Salvation is a free gift. It's offered out to you. You don't have to do anything to accept it. Accept, accept it. So I encourage you to accept that free gift even today. And then if you have, I would encourage you to celebrate that free gift with church family on Easter, baptism. We turn now to communion. And as we think about communion in the light of all that has been said here, 
we realize that communion is a participation in Jesus' restored humanity. So as we take a moment here shortly to pass the elements and to reflect on what God is calling us, I encourage us to meditate and think about these things. Let me pray for us here as we turn our thoughts and attentions to the Lord's table. God, thank you for Jesus sending him to be all that we were meant to be but could not be. Thank you that you have given grace to us in Christ to be restored into true humanity. God, thank you for this moment of communion that brings us together now as a congregation and also reminds us of the relationship that we have with this true and better Adam, this son of man, this redeemed, restored, what redeemed, restored humanity looks like. God, help us to not settle for second best, to to chase after things that can't ever be the real thing. God, help us to, to rest wholly in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.